0: Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Katani and with me, Chris Smith. Let's take a look at what else has been hitting the scientific headlines this week. Kat?
1: There's a big story today about cancer, and cancer is a growing problem, and mainly because we're all living longer, so it means we're more likely to develop the disease at some point in our lifetime. And although we've got a lot better at treating cancer in recent years, it does become a lot more tricky to treat once it's spread through the body, and this is a process called metastasis. It's the main cause of nine out of ten deaths from cancer. So there's understandably a lot of interest, in finding out why cancer spreads, how we can stop it. And in a paper in this week's issue of the journal Nature, Ilaria Malanke and her colleagues have made an important step forward. So what have they done? Well, cancer spreads when cancer cells break away from a tumour, the primary tumour, and travel around the bloodstream or the lymphatic system looking for new places to start growing and they form secondary tumours. Now, the researchers were intrigued by the fact that although many cancer cells set off around the body from a primary tumour, only a very small number of them can actually form secondary tumours. So it's a bit like a dandelion throwing off thousands and thousands of tiny seeds but only a small handful of them actually land somewhere they can grow.
0: So is there something special about the cell- cells that depart from the tumor and they can then settle in a new territory in the body or is there something special about the part of the body they go to that is a bit more propitious for a tumor to settle there and form which of those two is it
1: Well, it's actually a bit of both, according to this new research. And the scientists were studying an animal model of breast cancer that spreads to the lungs. And they found that secondary tumours in the lungs could only be started by a very small group of specialised cancer stem cells. And these are the immortal cells that are thought to be at the heart of many types of cancer. But they make up less than 5% of the cells coming from a primary tumour. So there's definitely something special about these particular cells that can start new tumours, But not all the available cancer stem cells went on to form secondary tumours, so there must be something special about the places they land as well.
0: And did they look into that? How did they follow it up?
1: Well, they homed in on a protein called periostin, which is produced by supporting cells. These are called stromal cells. And they're found in all sorts of places where healthy stem cells grow. And they're also found in places where secondary tumours grow. Now, the researchers found that periostin in the stromal cells in secondary tumours in the lungs of these animals were there. But when they looked at normal, healthy lung tissue, they didn't see any periostin. And importantly, they didn't see this molecule in the lungs of mice, who had breast cancer but that hadn't yet started spreading.
0: So these arriving tumour cells must be doing something special to turn this periostin signal on then?
1: Absolutely, and this is playing a vital role in allowing these cancer stem cells to take root and form secondary tumours. And when the scientists looked at mice with cancer that had been genetically engineered to lack periostin, they found a massive reduction in the number of secondary tumours, proving that it's this molecule that's extremely important for helping cancers to spread. Now, the scientists think that the cancer stem cells travelling in the body are giving out some kind of signal that makes supporting stromal cells produce periostin and this in turn makes the cancer cells switch on processes that make them settle down and grow. So it's pretty much like these stem cells wandering around the body shouting out a message going, I want to grow, I want to grow, and some of the stromal cells hear it and respond and make a suitable environment for the cancer stem cells to bed down and take root.
0: And that sounds like an opportunity to intervene medically.
1: Absolutely, and although that's still a long way off, this research is quite exciting because the processes that this team have uncovered could be at the heart of many different types of cancer and could potentially lead to new ways to stop it
0: from spreading. Terrific. Thank you, Kat. Well, to something very different, which is some paleoanthropology. And believe it or not, scientists have stumbled upon Fred Flintstone's bed, would you believe? Um, this is a paper published in Science this week. It's by Lynn Wadley, who's a researcher at Vortisran University in Joburg, in South Africa. And she and her colleagues have been looking at a site which is called Sibudu Cave, which is in KwaZulu Natal province in South Africa. And they've done a big excavation there which spans having dated it some 77,000 years before present and what they've found in their excavation is evidence of these original cave dwellers who would have been what are called middle stone age people there would have been modern humans but they were stone age they were making beds and this bedding is extremely well preserved and what they can do is to use archaeobotany and looked down the microscope at the samples to work out what species were being used and the people who made these beds were going down to a river which was about 20 metres below the level of the cave and they were collecting various sedges and other grasses to make their beds that's one thing, a practice that in some places still goes on today but intriguingly they also found there are thin layers of leaves and the leaves come from a particular tree which is Crypto-Korea woodyi And this tree, it's also known as the Cape Laurel, is well known to practitioners of traditional medicine in these bits of Africa because it produces various chemicals in the leaves that are insecticidal and chemists have subsequently tested them they've got all kinds of molecules including alpha-pyrones in them that destroy things like mosquitoes so these ancient people were already very cognizant of the beneficial effects of plants and potentially plant-derived medicine because they were filling their beds with natural insecticides and these molecules would have come out of the leaves probably under the influence of the body heat from the person sleeping on the bed and this would have got onto the skin of the person and made them distasteful to mosquitoes And that went on for at least four or 5,000 years before these people also then, the archaeology reveals, uh, got into another strategy for infection control. Uh, Or perhaps they just had a lot of teenagers living in this cave who wouldn't make their bed. They started to burn it. And there's evidence that they would sleep somewhere and then they would burn the bed. And this would be a very good way of, of ridding the environment of pests. But it certainly adds an important missing bit of information because we're pretty well aware of what these ancient peoples did in terms of hunting and what they ate and how they went about their business out in the field. Their domestic living arrangements, though, were much less well understood. And now this paper sheds enormous light on how these people went about their business.
1: I'm guessing they didn't have a Fred Flintstone duvet cover then. Um, so I've, I've been very busy this week in the news because uh, for my day job, I work for Cancer Research UK. And we put out a very big story this week looking at risk factors for cancer and showing that around um, 100,000 cancers a year are caused by just four preventable risk factors. That's smoking, uh, drinking too much alcohol, being overweight, uh, and not eating enough fruit and veg.
0: But that's not rocket science, is it? Because we, it's we did know that. absolutely
1: not. No, it's not. But this is the biggest paper so far to have come out that's looked at um, lots of different types of cancer and lots of different risk factors and actually really been able to quantify it. And it's, it's the most reliable data we have on the links between a lot of different risk factors. So not just the big ones like smoking. Smoking is by far and away the biggest risk factor for cancer but many other ones things like UV, occupational exposure all these kind of things and being able to put some hard and fast numbers onto these about how much these different things that you can avoid can increase your risk of
0: cancer. So can you just just very briefly give us a couple of them and explain why this adds new value and new insight into those areas?
1: Well, in some ways, it's not surprising to a lot of us who work in cancer. Um, but obviously, the really big one is showing that almost a quarter of cancers in men are down to smoking. So that's a really, really big risk factor. But interestingly, as well, one of the things that came out is that not eating enough fruit and veg is a much bigger risk factor in men than in women. And uh, this is actually because generally, men don't eat enough fruit and veg compared to women. Um, so there were some interesting things that came out. But yeah, it was it was more or less a, a no-brainer. But But it's nice to see all the data there in a way that that can really be explained and shown to people.
0: And if people would like to follow up and and see this data, where should they go?
1: There's a a really nice rundown of it and a really good infographic on the Cancer Research UK science update blog. So uh, you can go and have a look at that and look at some of the factors there. And there's a very interesting discussion going on there because some patients have felt that putting this information out is blaming them for getting cancer. And of course for an individual cancer it's very difficult to say exactly what caused it. um, but it's it's more important that we can tell people we know what can increase your risk and what can reduce your risk as well.
0: Thank you very much, Kat. We're on to something slightly different now, qualified London taxi drivers. They know their way around 25,000 streets in the capital in order to pass the knowledge, as the exam is known. And if you scan their brains, you will find that a structure called the hippocampus, which contains a mental map of the world around us, is much bigger in those individuals, than it is in the average non-taxi driver. But was it bigger to begin with, which is why they became a taxi driver, or did learning the back of London, like the back of your hand, mean that this triggered cabbies' brains to change? Well, now UCL's Eleanor Maguire thinks that she knows the answer.
2: Animals who do a lot of navigating often have a bigger hippocampus than um, animals of the same species who don't engage in much navigation. So we wondered if the same would be true of the human brain and whether those who navigated a lot would also have a bigger hippocampus than those who didn't navigate so much. And so about 11 years ago, um, I studied this using magnetic resonance imaging um, and some London taxi drivers. And we indeed found that they had greater gray matter volume in part of their hippocampus than people who didn't navigate so much.
0: I guess one problem, though, or one criticism of that is that it's purely observational in the sense that you look at this group, they're taxi drivers. Mm -hmm. Do they have a very big hippocampus because they're taxi drivers or do they have a job as a taxi driver because they have a very big hippocampus, which means they're endowed with a very good map in their head?
2: And that's a very important point. And in fact, that's one of the prime motivations of the current study was to try to see if we could document within specific individuals the change that might occur in the structure of the hippocampus purely as a consequence of acquiring this very detailed mental map of London.
0: So how did you actually do it?
2: Well what we did was we uh, with the cooperation of the public carriage office we recruited um, trainees who are just starting their um, training as, as London taxi drivers and we scanned their brains and we tested their memory um, and then off they went to uh, try to acquire the knowledge and this takes about four years on average, three to four years and so when people had qualified um, we invited them back and we scanned their brains again and tested their memories again. And we were able to, in the first instance, look at people um, before they started and see if there was anything in their brain or their behavior that could predict who would eventually qualify. Because the interesting thing is only 50% of the trainees actually went on to qualify. It's an extremely tough thing trying to become a, a, a taxi driver in London.
0: So the odds are slightly better in medicine. Um, <laughs> did they give you any reason why they dropped out, the ones that did drop out? Because, I mean, there may have been perfectly sound reasons yes. other than cognitive ones.
2: Absolutely. That they I think withdrew. it's true. It's difficult to know. It's probably quite a heterogeneous group in the sense that some people probably did find it very tough going and they just didn't have the the navigational sort of skills to, to, to pursue this. But it's also the case that you know, embarking on this training can be time consuming, can take time away from your family. It's a big financial commitment. And in the current climate, undoubtedly some individuals had to withdraw as a consequence of those sorts of issues. So it's not an easy, um, it's not easy to know exactly why people dropped out. And sometimes people can say they dropped out for one reason, but maybe it was another reason and so on. So, so it is quite a mixed group. But we did end up with a group that didn't qualify, a group that did qualify and then of course we had control participants who didn't engage in any training at all but still uh, we, we scanned at the start and at the end of the study just like the trainees.
0: And the mo- probably the most important question is those people who you scanned at baseline yeah. and then they became qualified taxi drivers, uh-huh. did you see any differences in their brains?
2: We did. For those who qualified, we found that um, between um, the start and the finish of the study, um, the back part of their hippocampus had um, increased in volume and no other part of the brain had changed, just very specifically this back part of the hippocampus, which is what we found in our previous sort of observational studies where we compared taxi drivers to non-taxi drivers. So it it was fully in line with our, our previous results.
0: And the controls, they didn't show any changes?
2: No, the controls and those who didn't qualify, their brains remained all exactly the same from start to the finish of the study.
0: Now what about other measures of cognition? Because you said you also tested their memories in mm. other ways. So rather yeah. than just looking at the structure of the brain, you also looked at function. Yeah. What were the differences then, before and after?
2: Well, obviously, the first thing we did was we tested people's general intellectual ability just to make sure that there was no differences in that regard. So the the IQs, for example, of of the individuals were all very similar. Uh, We then tested um, their basic knowledge of London in terms of understanding spatial relationships between landmarks in London. And then we did a whole range of other memory tests that looked at their ability to remember um, verbal material, that's you know, words or pictures or other types of spatial information. So we did those tests at the start and then we did them, a uh, parallel versions of those tests at the end of the study.
0: And how did the results of the before and after compare amongst all the groups?
2: Well, we found that um, the controls didn't change um, and we found that the uh, trainees, particularly the qualified trainees, became much better um, in terms of their knowledge of, of London and lo- the proximity of landmarks to each other, which, of course, you'd expect because they were trying to actually learn that information. But what was most interesting was that on other tests of spatial uh, memory, the, those who qualified actually performed worse Um, at the end of the study than they did at the start. And this is something we found previously in our studies of taxi drivers, that although they are very expert in terms of navigating around London, perhaps there's a little bit of a price to pay for that expertise in that they become a little bit worse at dealing with information of other kinds. And that kind of makes sense, you know, something's got to give when, when you're taking in a lot of information.
0: And of course you're now left with another problem which perhaps you'll answer in another 10 years which is those people that didn't drop out and did show this change is there something special about them in that their brain is more adaptable it can incorporate new cells, make more grey matter when they need to do a task like this compared with people who find it less easy?
2: Yes, I think that is another important question and so we must consider you know, the reasons for why people failed to qualify It may be that there are genetic predispositions to hippocampal plasticity in the individuals who qualified allowing them to expand their knowledge and so expand the volume of their posterior the back part of their hippocampus and there may be other individual differences that come into play as well so I think this is a very important issue because you know what we all want to know is given any individual what can they hope to achieve how much can they learn and you know what capacity does their memory and their hippocampus have. So I think it's going to be very important to understand these individual differences in future studies.
0: That was Eleanor Maguire from University College London and she published that work this week with her colleague Catherine Woollett in this month's Current Biology. Cat.
1: And now, with a look at what else has been sparking scientific interest around the globe, including how females fend off unwanted male attention by seeking out more attractive company to associate with, here's Mira St. Thillingham with this week's Naked Scientists Newsflash.
3: The recent resurgence in bed bug infestations taking place in Western countries is owing to the biting insects being re-imported from abroad rather than reoccurring locally. North Carolina State University's Kobe Shell analyzed the genetic diversity of bedbugs collected from outbreaks along Route 95 on the U.S. East Coast.
2: Because we found this extremely high genetic diversity in populations along the East Coast, that should suggest to us that there are multiple introductions of bedbugs coming into the United States from multiple sources. And that sort of pattern would argue against sort of a local resurgence of bedbugs. It suggests that they're coming from other places. It's difficult to place the blame on any one group, but I think international globalisation and commerce and increased transport are very likely involved.
3: Working rotating night shifts can increase a woman's risk of developing type 2 diabetes by up to 60%. This appears to be at least partly down to night work also causing weight gain. Announcing the results in the current edition of PLOS Medicine, Harvard scientist Anne Pan looked at data from 170,000 women aged 25 to 67 who'd been followed up for between 18 and 20 years.
0: Compared to women who do not do any rotating shift work, women who have already done about one to two years of shift work has about 5% increased risk. For women who do three to nine years shift work, the increased risk jumps to about twenty percent increased risk. And if you go higher, more than twenty years of rotating shift work the increased risk is about sixty percent increase. Body weight explains a lot of the associations, people who do not shift work gain more weight during the follow up compared to women
1: who do not do shift work.
3: Non-receptive female fish resort to hanging out with a more attractive counterpart to divert unrequited male mating advances away from themselves. Working with guppies, Exeter biologist Safi Darden found that, given a choice, females for whom the time wasn't right would actively seek out a fitter female for company
2: now that we knew that females would receive less attention if they were with a more sexually attractive female, did they actually actively make this choice to spend time with a more sexually attractive female to avoid male attention? And when we gave females that weren't receptive uh, to male attention a choice to um, swim next to a more attractive female or an equally attractive female we found that she preferred to swim in close proximity to the more attractive female. When we tested fish that were receptive, they didn't have any such preference.
3: This has important implications for how these and other fish organise their social hierarchies, and it was published this week in
1: the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Not entirely sure how you work out what's an attractive fish or not, but that was Miracenthilingham reporting, and all of these stories, along with the references, are on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash news.
0: The Naked Scientists News Flash reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at NakedScientists.com.